that our victory is secured by the work of Christ. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Let me ask our ushers to come and receive our offering this morning. And uh, we'll make just a few announcements today as we, as we receive our offering. And then we're going to get to scripture together. So, Lord bless you as you give today. Um, if you don't have a bulletin, please make sure you get one. Uh, this is where you can get all the events that are upcoming over the next uh, uh, couple of months. For now, let me just mention a couple of announcements really quickly. After the morning service this morning, there's going to be two meetings going on. Um, one is going to be for our winter VBS. So um, if you're interested in being part of that, if you've been part of the last couple of meetings or you're interested in being part of it now, please make note that in the back room there, um, out the doors to the right, uh, there will be a meeting for the, uh, the winter VBS team that is uh, working on that event together. So uh, please head back there after the morning service. Next week is, is uh, Membership Sunday. We're going to be receiving some new members next Sunday morning. Uh, so there's two parts to that announcement. The first part is that there's going to be a brief new members meeting after the service this morning. So if you're planning on becoming a member next week, I do know that there are a few folks who are planning on becoming members that are not here this morning. We're not able, and it's okay. It's not like it's a precondition or something like that. But, um, uh, but, uh, but we'd like to have just a brief meeting with you, um, those of you that are going to become members next week. And we'll just go back in this room over here off the side of the, uh, uh, of the, the um, what is this, the sanctuary uh, this morning. So you can head right back over there after the service and we'll have a, it'll just be brief, 10, 15 minutes at the most, uh, a brief meeting for those of you that are gonna become members. Now, here's the part of it that is a little bit longer that I need to make sure uh, everyone gets a hold of. Uh, uh, this was suggested to me and, I, and, and it was a great suggestion, I think. Um, next Sunday, after receiving new members, we're gonna have a fellowship meal together. We have, we have held meals in the basement of the church in previous years. We make it work. We do what we have to do to make it work, but it's not easy. It's not convenient. Um, and so someone said, hey, uh, maybe it'd be a good idea to hold our meal somewhere else, especially if it was somewhere that in the community we could feel like we were getting connected with a little bit more. And um, one of the places they suggested was New Hope Ministries. So I reached out to Eric Saunders and, and he said, man, we haven't had a group meet here since COVID started. We'd love to have a local church use this facility again. Uh, so next Sunday morning, after the morning service, as quickly as possible, I know that, I know that this just presents a different kind of inconvenience because it means bringing food if you have it plugged in somewhere here, you're gonna to have to unplug it and take it over to New Hope, but it's only like three blocks away. So it's, it's, it's manageable, right? So after the morning service, we're gonna head over to New Hope Ministries. They're gonna have tables and chairs set up for us. So that's all gonna be ready. Um, we have use of their kitchen. 
We'll plug stuff in, we'll eat together. It's really informal. When you get there, just start eating, enjoy your food, right? And we're gonna share, share, share alike. So um, during our time there, we're gonna take a 10 minute break and, um, and a representative from New Hope, I think it's gonna be their executive director, Eric Saunders. He's gonna make an appearance and he's gonna share with us for about 10 minutes about what New Hope does and just give us an idea of one way that we can be connected with the community through New Hope Ministries. Um, but our focus is gonna be on welcoming our, our new members. So that will be next Sunday. So, uh, so the, the last part of the announcement is this. Please, uh, please bring with you a main dish all right, everyone brings a main dish big enough for us to share with one another. And then you can bring a side, either a vegetable or a dessert. Um, we'll make sure that there's, uh, that there's drinks and paper products and everything else we need there. Um, but bring with you a main dish and then bring with you either a side, a side of some point, either a, a vegetable or a dessert. And, uh, and we'll, have a, we'll have a good time of fellowship together as a body next Sunday morning at New Hope Ministries. Did I, did I say that clear enough or did I leave questions? Sometimes I think I say things clearly enough and I find out later that I didn't. So is that clear? Uh, which meeting? Next Sunday? As soon as we're done here, we'll head over there. So um, you'll all be there before I'll be the last one out to lock up. And uh, so leave some food for me, please. Just kidding. You can eat it all. All right. So we'll be over there. We'll have a good time of fellowship together. We'll just head out straight after the morning service. Okay. All right. Um, aside from that, make sure that you've got a uh, bulletin so that you can keep track of the events that are upcoming over the next couple of months. So let's turn our attention this morning to Scripture then. Our theme for this year has been Jesus first. Uh, I know at least part of it as we were discussing as an elder team um, last year, a theme for this year. It wasn't something that we had done before. Um, you know, coming off of that, that brief time we were closed down because COVID was happening, and at that point, nobody knew for sure how big of a deal this was and how serious it was and what was going on. And, and then there was, there was the whole, you know, just the, all the controversy surrounding some of these things. Um, uh, after some prayerful consideration, we said, you know, it would not be a bad thing to just encourage the congregation to focus on Jesus next year. Let's just focus on Jesus next year. Let's keep our attention on Jesus next year. So the theme that we selected was Jesus first. So far this year, I know that we've had some little breaks, like for Mother's Day had its own message, but, but for the most part, uh, we, have, we have taken this whole year on three series of messages. The first series was, was what the Bible teaches about the kingdom. What the Bible teaches about the kingdom. We were focused on Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God. Uh, so we focused on the kingdom. The second series, then we moved into the kingdom parables. That is the parables that Jesus told when he said, the kingdom of God is like... And we focused on the kingdom parables for an extended amount of time. And then most recently, we have moved on from the kingdom parables to people who had encounters with Jesus during his earthly life. And we have focused our attention on, on people who met with Jesus and what we can learn from those encounters that they had 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we've been so far this year. I'm going to say this right now. Um, I'm not sure how long the, the, mess, the, the series I'm about to introduce is going to last. We'll see. But I am, just, I am just itching for December to get here. I can't wait for December to get here. I've had a series of messages. I don't know how good it'll be as far as my preaching of it. That's a total open question, all right? So, but I just know the subject matter I can't wait for. I am, I am just like... I'm like a little bit giddy over it. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait to get there. I'm not telling you. Absolutely not. Um, I'm trying to learn some things about how this is supposed to be done well, and building a little anticipation is not a bad thing, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the series that we're going we're gonna, to uh, uh, look at together in the month of December. Um, anyways, uh, for at least the rest of this month, and we'll see what happens through the month of November, um, I, want to, uh, I want to look at a, a new series that's going to deal with the church, who we are as Jesus' church. So how many of you are thankful for the saving encounter that you had with Jesus? Amen? Aren't you glad God saved you? You came face to face with Jesus in this sense that you recognized him as your savior. Well, when you did, you became part of the church. And I, and I, I want to focus on the church, especially surrounding these membership, uh, uh, this, this membership discussion that we're, uh, that we're having because of receiving new members next Sunday. The title that I want to give to this series is The Church's Identity in Action. The church's identity in action. I titled it that way for this reason. Because um, the reality of, of the situation is that, um, that identity determines action, doesn't it? We act according to our identity. It's part of the reason why some of the things that are going on in our culture are so concerning right now. People are being, are being taught that, um, that identity crisis in its most extreme forms is an okay thing. And you can just redefine your identity. And what we're seeing is people that are acting out whatever identity they define themselves as. Now, this is not uncommon. Um, uh, when, when uh, way back in the day, when somebody used that line, act your age, not your shoe size. They were calling you to act according to your identity. You're older than seven, so act, act like who you are, right? It was a call to behave according to one's identity. Um, when when uh, a little boy uh, uh, hits his sister and a parent says, hey, act like a gentleman, you're speaking a word of identity to that child. This is who you are. This is who you're supposed to be. And your behaviors should be according right? You should act according to who you are or according to who you're supposed to be. Identity 
Identity is supposed to determine action. Identity is not something that can, uh, that can be claimed without action. It's, it's part of the reason um, that, you know, this, well, I won't go into it any further. Um, when, when you ask someone um, what they do, what they do, we recognize that often in, in talking about what we do for a living, there's a certain amount of our identity that's wrapped up in that. Well, I'm, and here's the way we say it, I'm an electrician. That is a statement of identity, isn't it? I am an whatever it is. I am a financial planner. I am, and we, we fill in the sentence that way. And what we're saying is, this is who I am, and there's a whole series of actions. There's a whole series of functions that are a result of that. I do this because I am this. Identity determines our action in many respects. It's what the scripture means in part when it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The way you define yourself, the way you define yourself comes out in the life that you live. It comes out in your actions. My brothers and sisters, the, the one true, deep transformation of identity that a person can experience in life is coming to know Jesus as their personal Savior. It changes everything about who you are. Changes everything about who you are. The Apostle Peter said it this way. He said, um, he said because of this, I'll paraphrase him, because of your encounter with Jesus, because you've met Jesus... There will be a whole host of people that will think it's strange that you don't run with them the same way you used to. It doesn't mean that you just cut them off, that, you, that you're no longer friendly with them. It does mean this, you won't be friendly with them the same way you used to be friendly with them. It means that if they were part of a social circle that, that defined itself by certain ungodly actions and practices and, and, and behaviors, it means you might not want to cut them off, but you won't be able to participate in those activities anymore. And it will change the relationship. It will change. It will change. Why? Because you've got a new identity. You've got a new identity. I think one of the challenges we have as believers is understanding how to apply our identity as Christians to a world that is changing faster than we can keep up with. How do we as Christians relate to the technologies of our day, to the things that are available to us in our day? What do we do as Christians in response to the things that are available to us? It's, 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 a, it's a profound question. And what we're asking is, our identity is for sure. We know who we are. How do we walk it out today? What does it mean for our behaviors today? What does it mean for the way we live today? The church's identity. So we're going to look at this is who the church is, and then this is what it looks like for the church to be the church in action. First of all, church is a New Testament word. 
We think about what it means to be the church. It's a New Testament word. In fact, if you look up the word church in a concordance, what you'll find is it's not used in the Old Testament one time. The word church is not used in the Old Testament once. Now, there are other words that could be viewed similarly, but the word church is not used in the Old Testament. The first time it appears is in Matthew 16. The first time it appears is in Matthew 16. That's going to be our text this morning. So let's turn there and read Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Now, I'll give you just a second. Matthew 16, verses, verses 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Why do people say, uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail, shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. A couple of other things here. The, the word church that we just read is, uh, is in Greek that well-known word by now, ekklesia. It means a calling out. It means a calling out. In essence, you could say that in, in, in one sense, any assembly of people is a church. That is, any assembly of people has been called out for some purpose, right? Um, but that being said, we have to understand that, that while there might be many groups of called out people, that is, uh, a school board gets called out for a meeting for a specific reason, right? In a sense, that's a church, a called out people. Any group of people that get called out when, when um, Johnny's beeper goes off and all the firemen get called out, that's a group called out for a very specific purpose, right? And that, that's the concept of, a new, uh, the, the, of just the meaning of the word church. But we have to notice in this text that Jesus is talking about something, even though the word is fairly generic, he's talking about something specific because what he says is, I will build my church. My church. That is, there's going to be a group of people that are called out, that are called out specifically for my purposes, and they belong to me. They belong to me. And in that sense, there is no other group of people that is the church. That takes that word church that has a generic use for anyone that's called out. And it says there is a special group of people in the mind of God. They are his special people 
They belong to him because they've been called out from this world by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we sang for, uh, this morning, and, 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 and we are called out by virtue of the fact that he shed his blood for us and died for us. And through that gospel message, he calls to us. And as we respond to him, we become part of his church. We step into the church of Jesus Christ. It is a called out people unlike any other called out people in this world. In fact, it's a, it's a, it's a people that are called out from. So I was trying to think of it. This is, a, this is a, a not a great illustration. How many of you remember using transparency paper when you were a child and tracing over? It's a paper that's superimposed over another paper. The church is kind of like that. We are a people superimposed over the peoples of this earth. So you look at it and you say, here's a different illustration. And I don't know if this one's any better, but it's the illustration I'll use. I, I intend nothing by this. Um, how many of you know who the gypsies are? How many of you know where, they originally, where, where it's believed they originated from? Where? Anybody know? Yeah. Okay, there's all these questions. Does anyone know what their, what their kind of official name is originally? Ro yeah, the, the Romani people, right? Um, wherever their origins are is still somewhat mysterious in history uh, as far back. Then there are, there are suggestions that eventually there was some kind of a congregation in, in Romania and they spread throughout Europe from there. The point of it is this. Imagine if, if, they, if they formed a government and elected leadership over, over that group of people, but they don't live in one country. They're spread all over the place. They're spread all over Europe. We have some in the United States of America. What you would have was, would be a borderless, boundaryless, without geography, group of people who existed as a people with their own hierarchy in place, spread out all over the earth. That's the church. We have, we have a different structure. We have a different allegiance. It, we, we live, the, the, the song that we just sang, uh, uh, the songs that we just talked about the church as people that are spread all over the earth, but they have this one charter of their salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. So what you've got is, is a people that have secondary allegiances on this planet. They, they all live in different countries of which they are citizens, to which they have responsibilities, and from which they derive certain privileges. We have more privileges than most others. But then there's this thing that we say that's, that above that is, is a faith in Jesus Christ that unites us as a holy nation. And really spread through all the earth, there's a people that belong together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are His church. We're His church. No geographical boundaries, no borders. 
linked by a spiritual fact of the new birth, regeneration through Jesus Christ. It's, it's what it means to be part of the church. We have been called out from this world. We belong to Christ uniquely. The church. Now, real quickly, three ways to use the word church. They're all legitimate. The first one is um, purely a part of the English language. This has nothing to do with the Bible. We use the word church to describe a building where people meet for religious purposes. It's okay to say that so long as we don't forget that that's not the church the way it's described in Scripture. Right? So when you say to your family, we're going to church, okay, that's, that's a, a linguistic tool. That's all. It's, a, it's what we call the building. All right? And that's a legitimate way to use the word, but don't get it confused with what Scripture teaches about the church. The second is that the church is believers from all times and places. Um, uh, John Wesley, John Knox. Um, you go back in time, and you can say, now through a variety of, of circumstances and, and historical backgrounds, there are all these people who were believers in Jesus. They're all part of the church with a capital C. They're all part of the church. We are part of the church. Um, uh, so time is not a boundary for the church any more than geography is a boundary for the church. We are a people that are united by allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of when we live or where we live. That's the church with a capital C. The third way the word church is used, and it is used that way in, in, this way in the New Testament, is to describe a local assembly of believers. This is a church not because of the building we meet in, but because God's people have gathered together. We are the church. We are a church. We are one local expression of the body of Christ. In Dillsburg, there are any number of other churches that are meeting this morning. They, too, are expressions of the body of Christ. They, too, are part of the church with a capital C. We are just one of many local assemblies, local meeting places for God's people to gather. The, the, uh, the New Testament uses the word church in this way also. Now, notice the phrase that Jesus uttered, I will build my church. I will build my church. Let me just do this very quickly. The fact is that throughout the New Testament, and it, and it uh, originated here with that word build, that, that a, the, uh, a building has been used, was used throughout the New Testament as an analogy for the church. Give you a few scriptures and a few examples of how this was done. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul refers to the fact that there is no foundation that can be laid other than the foundation that has been laid, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the church's one foundation. That's what we sang this morning. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. One foundation. We are built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so 
1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul picks up this analogy of a building and says the foundation of the building is Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, anyone who ministers to the building, anyone who is serving in a, in a capacity to minister to the building had better pay attention how they build because they're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of those laborers is to grow and develop the living building of the church. That's just part of what it is to be a minister, a servant in, in the body of believers. All who minister to the building are laborers that help to grow and develop the building. And Paul says this. He says, pay attention because you're going to give an account for how you build. You're going to give an account for how you build. Could I just pause here one more time? And, and um, usually when I'm thinking about this, the scripture that comes to mind is from James chapter 3. Let not many of you be teachers, knowing that you will receive greater condemnation. But let us take a second to remind ourselves that anyone that is willing to take upon themselves a position of ministry to the body of Christ, and I'm not just talking about pastors. Anyone who takes upon themselves uh, a Sunday school teacher, you're ministering to the body of Christ. You are taking upon yourself a solemn responsibility for which you are going to give an account to your Savior someday. It's serious work because you're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It's serious work. Jesus is the foundation. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 picks up this analogy and says, oh, by the way, while Jesus is the foundation, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, that the church was also built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What he's saying is there were people that God used originally to build his church. So here's one way to say it. On the day of Pentecost, P Peter stood up and preached a message, and on that day, 3,000 people got saved. And because the apostles and prophets in that day were faithful to proclaim the gospel, the gospel was passed on generationally from one generation to the next, and you and I are sitting here, the direct lineage and offspring of the apostles of the church. We are... You want to trace your, your lineage, your ancestry in terms of, of who you are on this planet? Spiritually, you go back to Peter. Spiritually, you're in a direct line of descent from the Lord Jesus Christ on through the apostles and the prophets of the early church. That's where you come from. That's your family. That's your family. It's your lineage. In that sense, they are your foundation. That's where you came from. They, they, they put the groundwork down and you came from them. I came from them. A third one is 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, where Peter, not just Paul, but Peter picks up this analogy and he says, we believers are living stones. We're living stones that make up a spiritual house. We can picture how stones can be stacked on top of one another to build a house. Peter says, well, we're, we're, we're alive, we're not dead like, like a rock that you'd pick up outside, we're, but we're living stones, part of a house, a whole building that is being built. Some of us 
have had the privilege of seeing some of the grand buildings of the world, some of the old cathedrals, for example, in Europe, just stone upon stone upon stone, and you step back and you just marvel at the structure. You stop and think about a building of the church that is, let's just say conservatively, hundreds of millions of people on planet Earth today. And then you go back in time and you start talking about what must be whatever billions of people that when you add them all up over are, I mean, what kind of structure is that? I'll tell you something, that's a house. That's a very large building, right? Of all these living stones from the time of Christ till now that have gone into the construction of the church. And then we've got these little stones called children sitting in here that we're endeavoring to bring to Jesus that are going to be growing as living stones into, into some pretty key stones in the future, part of the building of the church. There's three things in this passage that I want us to look at very quickly before we close. In this passage, there's three things that I think the church needs to pay attention to in this very first message, just introducing the ideas of the church to us. The first one is when Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Well, first of all, we've got to pay attention to the rock. What is this rock? Well, there's three possibilities that have been, that have been considered by theologians throughout the years. I'm going to mention them to you. I'm going to tell you which one I think is the most likely, and then you'll have to make up your own mind, okay? But there's three possibilities. The first one is that Jesus himself is the rock. And how many of you think... Like, it's the Sunday school. If you're not paying good attention and some the teacher asks you a question, just say Jesus. He's like 95% of the time, he's going to be the right answer, right? So um, in that sense, you feel like, uh, you know, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in the air. There's a rock, there's Jesus. That, you're safe with giving Jesus as the, as the answer there, right? Um, and, so, and so there's probably a sense in which this is appropriate. It's just that linguistically, it doesn't seem to be what Jesus was talking about. When he looks at Peter and he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, in essence, what he'd be saying is, you're Peter, and on myself I will build my church. It just doesn't seem to flow with anything that he's saying right then. It doesn't seem to be what would make immediate sense in the context of what Jesus is saying. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I will say that this view has been a minority view throughout the history of the church. There have been a few prominent people that believe that Jesus was referring to himself, but not very many. Probably the position that has been most held is that Peter's confession is the rock. That Peter's confession. Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you're Peter... The word means rock. And on this stone, it's a word that means something a little bit smaller than the rock. So this thing that came out of you, Peter, this stone that came out of you, this confession, 
Upon this I will build my church. That is, everyone that says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, becomes part of the church. Everyone who adopts that as their, as their, their belief, that person becomes part of the church. And so it's possible that when Jesus uses this word rock or stone, that he's referring to the confession of Peter. Now, the, the, the concern that has been given down through the, the history of the church is, and I want to say this as clearly as possible, um, hopefully we can all agree, <clears throat> you don't become part of the church by reciting the correct creeds and dogmas and doctrines. You can say the right words and not be saved. Amen? This may be controversial, but there have been people that have said the sinner's prayer that may never have been born again at all. They said the right words in the moment, but that's not the same thing as believe on the Lord Jesus Christ from your heart. It's not the same thing. And so the concern here is that evangelized regions and do whatever you have to do to baptize those poor natives so that they go to heaven. Please hear this. That doesn't save them. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. But the problem is easily solved by this, by this fact. What Jesus says to Peter is, you did not say those words of yourself. They didn't come from you. My Father revealed that to you. The point is that when the confession comes from a heart that has had Jesus revealed to him by the Father, that's a saving confession, and the person becomes part of the church. Here, let me say this as well. Would you possibly be able to believe that there might be some people that have been saved that never said the sinner's prayer at all? They never prayed a formula. But they did believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart. Confession with the mouth needs to be made. But the Bible doesn't mandate a sinner's prayer. It says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The prayer is one good way to confess him. It's not the only way to confess him. You can pray and not be saved. Saved without praying. The sinner's prayer is just a tool. It's a tool. It's a tool of confession that is only valid if there is belief in the heart. Amen? In that sense, Peter's confession may very well be the rock upon which, if you're wondering, in case you have this is the one I inclined towards. I incline toward this one. The third possibility is that Peter himself is the rock. Now, most good um, Protestants just recoil in horror over this because the Catholic Church took this one verse and turned it into the papacy. Right? He 
Peter is the foundation of the church. And he's been given the keys of the kingdom. Whatever he binds is bound. And if he loses, it's loose. The absolute authority of the Pope. And then there's the papal succession. And all the popes that come from him stand and have his authority. And, and that's one version of this. And I, I'm not going to take time on it. I don't need to go into that. Now, you can absolutely legitimately criticize that. Because all I did was say it's wrong and didn't get any legal advice. And I just don't have time for it. Or some valid criticism. passages that we have to understand. Let me read them to you very quickly. In John chapter 2, verse 23, I'm sorry, John chapter uh, 20, verse 23, we read this. It's a, it's a, a verse that has, that has troubled people at some times. Listen to this. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Listen to the next verse. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Say to yourself, whoa, wait a second, Jesus. That's a little outrageous. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they're retained. It's a pretty extraordinary statement. 
The second one is Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Listen to what it says in verses 15 to 8 through 18. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if authority that is given to the church. There's a certain authority that is given to the church. <clears throat> it's an authority that extends to a declaration that a person is either living in such extreme sin or extreme error that they cannot be allowed to continue to fellowship in the church. That for their own correction's sake, 1 Corinthians 5, for the, in the hope that they will come back to the Lord, that sometimes in very, very, very extreme cases, the church has to say, we take a step to not count you as a brother in order to put you in a place where you can be corrected of the sin that you have stepped into. I, listen, it is, it's extreme. It's extreme. But Jesus used extreme language to declare a certain authority the church has to distinguish a person that is living in sin from one who is not. And the point of it is this. Quick, real quickly, three things. The church is not unfallible nor infallible, nor does it have unlimited authority. That's not the role of the church. The church's authority is subservient to the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Those are above. Those are primary. But let me say it this way. My brothers and sisters, there is not one of us sitting in this room that is not capable of being deceived. Not one of us. And sometimes, sometimes, we need the church to call us to account. Sometimes it takes a brother going to another brother or sister and saying, hey, I'm concerned. And if they don't listen, it takes two or three going to the brother or sister and saying, hey, we're concerned. And if there's still no response, sometimes it takes, we better present this to the church because maybe the two or three of us are wrong. And what we need is the church to speak to this issue. 
We need the collective wisdom of the body of Christ. And listen, the point of what Jesus was saying, at least in part, is that, that there is this trust that God will by His Spirit speak through the church. That He will speak through the church. And it's necessary for that to happen in certain rare instances. This is one of those places where what we talked about in Sunday school this morning is true. Rugged individualism is an American concept, not a biblical concept. Not saying it doesn't have a place. I'm simply saying this. None of us is sufficient unto ourselves. We're part of the church. We need the other gifts of the Spirit around us. It's not a fun thing, but it's possible that there are times when the church has to say, we have to take a stand on this. We have to take a stand on this. I want you to imagine, brothers and sisters, I want you to imagine the day and age in which we're living. One day I sit up here and preach a message to you that tells you that there are that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to perform a homosexual wedding ceremony next month. The church better deal with it. The church better deal with it. There would be cases that would have to happen. By the way, these things have happened in the church already. And it drives congregations to ask themselves, can we continue to fellowship together? What does this mean for us? It ends up being something like, well, if all the leadership is on board together, then we've got to figure out where we go. Sometimes it might be that there's a rogue leader that needs to be dealt with. The church has authority to do this. The church has authority to do this. It's maybe a lost art. And let's, let me say again, this is not something that we do every day for minor reasons. Oh, did you know that so-and-so watched this movie? Let's bring him before the church. Okay, we don't take these extremes, okay? That's not, the point is, when a person is walking in open sin that gets serious enough, there's a binding and a loosing that has been assigned to the church. God uses the church in authoritative ways in certain circumstances, intended to be redemptive. These are the keys that God has given to the church. The church does have a role to play in the correction of sin and deep error. I could give other examples. I'm going to just finish real quickly. This is... Um, the title of the message is the, is the Church Militant, and I'm only going to mention it at the very end. I'll probably pick, on this, pick up on this later on, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to mention it and be done. The gates. What are these gates? The gates of hell shall not, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. What does this mean? Well, there's three truths that are present in this statement about the gates. First of all, gates in that day represent the entrance, the gates represent the entrance into hell. They represent the entrance into hell. <clears throat> what he says is the gates of hell will not prevail against you. The point of it is this. 
My brothers and sisters, you don't have to be afraid of going to hell when you die. The gates of hell don't get to have you. They cannot prevail against you. Why? Because, because the gospel has power that denies the claims of the gates of hell. It trumps the authority of the gates of hell. You don't have to fear the gates of hell. Oh, and by the way, when you preach the gospel to someone <clears throat> who's an unbeliever, <clears throat> you are preaching a truth that has the power to deliver that person from the gates of hell in the future. You're preaching a message that is more powerful than the gates of hell. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. It still is the power of God unto salvation. The gates of hell are not equal to the power of the gospel or the saving work of Jesus Christ. So you have personal security and the gospel has power. The second thing this, this, these gates mean is this. The gates were places of deliberation and counsel and decision-making. And let us not deceive ourselves. <clears throat> Satan is wily and his kingdom is organized. He's deliberate about what he does. But the point here is that the church can have hope that it will overcome the powers of darkness. One way the New Testament says it is that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Right? No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Why? Why? Because there's a power greater than the powers of darkness. We are not ignorant of Satan's schemes and devices. There is a power that is superior to the powers of darkness. We focused in VBS last year on putting on the whole armor of God. What's the purpose of the armor of God? That you might be able to stand in the evil day and having done all, stand, right? That there is a power available to you that is sufficient for the evil of the day. <clears throat> all right, let me do it one more time this morning. How many of you see a lot of evil in your world today? How many of you see it apparently having a lot of success today? Amen? You're not subject to it, my brothers and sisters. You don't have to participate. There is a power within you that is greater than the spirit of the age, and you don't have to get sucked up in it. And I think, and I think that as the people of God, we ought to lay claim to that promise for the next generation. That we can raise children in this sin-fallen world and believe that the power of the gospel is strong enough to redeem them unto God for himself and that they don't have to get trapped by the spirit of the age in which they live. That there is a power available to the church, the gates of hell, that, that in that Old Testament expression, when the enemy comes in like the flood, a spirit, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. That there's a power available to the church to overcome evil. And the third thing that he, that, that he meant by talking about these gates is simply this. Whether we like it or not, we have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that the church is at war. We are at war. 
our brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, we're at war. We are living behind enemy lines. It's not a pleasant thought, but today, the version of church, of the church that is alive on planet Earth today, is called the church militant. We are the church militant. That's who we are. The reason is because we're at war. It's not our choice. We don't get to choose whether we live at war or not. We are. We are. Now, the fact that it's a completely different kind of war is what it is, but it's war. Through the gospel, you and I are conducting an all-out assault on the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades are wide open, wanting to suck in as many people as possible. And you and I are doing everything in our power to rescue them from eternal damnation. We are literally fighting for the souls of men and women and children. We are fighting for their eternal destinies. Just that I don't have to worry about this later on. The way I just use that word is the only way I use that word because it's the legitimate way to use that word. To be eternally separated from God is a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. It's why that, that expression should not be used in other ways. We are fighting to prevent the eternal loss of souls. We are at war. At war to rescue people from eternally being separated from God. Scripture tells us that we are not to be overcome by evil, Romans 12, 21, but we are to overcome evil with good. This is the fight that we're in. This is the battle that we're in. <clears throat> there are all sorts of, of, of aspects of this. But let me close with one statement just to make this clear. Every form of battle that we fight Every battle that we fight, when you go to the polls and you vote the way you do because of your morality, that can be viewed as a part of your fight. But please hear this. As important as it is, it's a secondary part of your fight. It's not the primary part of your fight. The primary battle that the church fights is with the weapon of the gospel and deeds of love and mercy, bringing the heavenly kingdom to people who are lost. That's our primary battle. We are fighting for the souls of people. All the other legitimate aspects of battle are, are there, and they're, but they're secondary. They're the outworkings of. They're the ways that we think about how do we stand as light in the world and, and salt in the world in which we live. The church's primary responsibility was, has always been, and always will be to carry the gospel, to preach the gospel, to rescue the perishing. This is the primary mandate of the church. 
And it is through that mandate that we fight against the gates of hell. It is through that that we fight the gates of hell. Every time you share the gospel, you're at war, my brothers and sisters. Every time. It's the warfare of the church, the primary warfare of the church. I don't remember the words of the song, but there was an old song that said something like, let the church be the church. Let the people rejoice. Anybody remember that song? Let the church be the church. Let the people rejoice. <laughs> this really kind of motivating song. But that call to let the church be the church. We... <clears throat> In the days to come may find it more and more challenging to be the church, but we must never cease to be the church. We must never cease to be the church. We must with courage be the church. It means just reconciling our fact, ourselves to the fact that we are going to live at war. It's who we are. It's who we are. It's what we are. So, Take up the shield of faith. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Take up the helmet of salvation. Take up the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. And shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I took them out of order. Did I miss one? Did I say the helmet of salvation? Put on the helmet of salvation. I, I did get the sword of the Spirit, right? I did get that one too. That's okay. I did. We got it, right? You're a soldier. Put them on. What's that? I thought I said that one. You know what they are. And let's fight the fight that God's given us to fight. Amen? Uh, it's a holy war, it's a good war. It's a war that's motivated and driven by love. <clears throat> Let's fight the fight as the church. All right. Let's close. I, I didn't get, yeah. Let's close. Would you just bow with me today? <clears throat> and let's pray that the Lord would strengthen us as his church. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I, I really will close in prayer. Can I just say one more thing really fast for whatever it's worth? You know, every time I get a chance to get away, I really do get reminded of how precious a thing it is to be a part of the church. And I, this, this being away for Bethany's wedding last week, I got to be reminded of it in two ways. We had some good fellowship with God's people in Maine. Can I just tell you something? God has some people in Maine. I mean, he's got some good people in Maine. Amen? Benjamin and Ann's got, they know, they got some family up there, right? But God's got some, some serious soldiers up in Maine. Man, I'm thankful to fellowship with them. And then when, when I'm with them, I'm thinking... He's got some pretty decent people down in Pennsylvania, too. 
and, uh, and my brothers and sisters, we've got, we've got reason to be thankful that we get to walk life together a little bit together. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the church. I'm thankful for the church. I'm thankful for his people. Let's pray that God will help us to be faithful to be his church. All right, too long, let's pray. Lord, I, I just close this morning praying a prayer of blessing. <clears throat> Lord, in some... Well, all of us, in a variety of ways. Lord, we've been called to carry the gospel into the world in which we live. And all of us have our circle in which we do that. I think of how many people in this fellowship are employed in secular places where, where they have the privilege of being light bearers, carriers of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would give to your people grace. Let us never give in to a spirit of fear in our day. Let us never give in to a spirit of despair. Let us, let us not allow ourselves to become anxious. Lord, it's a serious day. We see the seriousness of the day. We're not sticking our head in the sand. But... Help us to trust that the word you spoke to us is true and that in the end, the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. We will go through times of societal ups and downs. We will go through times when the church is more in the minority or less in the, uh, more in the majority or, or, or more in the minority. But in the end, the church will be standing. You will preserve your people unto the end. And, and you will strengthen us for the battle of our day. Give us the courage to be your church. Give us the courage to be your church. Strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be your church. Lord, in this day, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Lord, in this day, give us a witness that is courageous and that is strong. In this day, Give us the privilege of reaping a harvest for you. And as parents, we would pray that the harvest would begin in our own homes with the lives of our children. Save them, Lord. Bring them into your kingdom, into your fold. Reveal Jesus to them that they might declare, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God.
and keep them in this day. Lord, with all the perplexities that the church might be confronted with in the days to come, give us wisdom as we depend upon you to know what to do, to know how your people ought to proceed in their day. And Lord, thank you for the privilege of being part of the body of Christ. Bind us together as one. Make us a blessing to one another, a source of encouragement to one another, a source of comfort, of hope, provision. Lord, a source of blessing to one another. Thank you for the privilege of being your church. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us, for giving us entrance into the family of God. We praise you. We bless you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, <clears throat> don't forget Operation Christmas Child. If you have questions, see Janet. VBS winter meeting. Don't forget that meeting. And new members, don't forget your meeting as well. Lord bless you. Thankful to be part of your church. God bless you all.